Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hi, it's Lainey. It's Duanna. Welcome to Show Your Work. And yeah, the show part of it is is notable today. <laughs> we were sitting here getting ready sound checking. And I was thinking uncomfortably about the fact that I was going to have to ask somebody to turn up the lights uh, because I'm old and can't see. And then you did it anyway. Because I was feeling the same way. I Well, I'm one of those people. Some people like to have, I don't know, what do you call it? Mood lighting? Like ambient? Yeah. That Ambience? it's not quite dark and not quite light. And that's the way that they like to eat. That's the way that they like to work. Like for me, it's bright light all the time. I can't eat when it's dark. I need to be able to see every detail of what my food looks like. I, it either has to be pitch black, I'm sleeping. I can you, read. I can read before bed in pitch black. Or it has to be bright light everywhere in every corner. See, I can work in the pitch black. In fact, I prefer it. Can't. When there's a cocoon around you and all there is is the screen, it's easy to shut stuff out and like get into a zone. In fact, that's one of the, when I get up super early in the morning to do work when I really have to, and it's better at, in the wintertime for this reason, mm-hmm. I feel like you're working and it's secret and you're getting ahead of the game because nothing is happening And when it starts to get light, I get a little disappointed because I'm like, well, now the world is up. Now people know where I am, even though this is illogical because internet and I'm still in my same couch where I was. See, I really love it. Like if I get up in the winter and I start blogging before it's light out. Yeah. And the first floor of my house is all lit up. I love that. I'm like. What do you like about it? I like the idea that. I start daytime. No, see, I like, that's really interesting. Yeah. No, I like it better when it's... Which is so narcissistic. I mean, oh, <laughs> wait a minute, wait a minute. You mean that because you're up, like you're launching the day that, for everybody else? That I, I like the idea that people are, maybe across the street might be like, what is the bright light coming from that house? And Yasik is now interjecting and saying, oh, it's not just across the street. It's upstairs because she stomps around. Like when I'm up, everybody should be up. No, (laughs) see, I feel exactly. I feel so opposite. I sneak because as long as everybody's still asleep, it's cheating time. It's borrowed time. It's secret. Um, And so I can do things secretly without anybody having to know because once people are awake, then it's like performative working. Then I have to do work. Oh no, I'm yeah. I'm all I'm all like, hey everybody, do you see my lights are on? You should be up now too. But then it wouldn't be special <laughs> if they were up. Then it wouldn't be special that you're awake. You we should exist. <laughs> we should start earlier. <laughs> this is rapidly going nowhere. This is like the red shirting conversation. What's the red shirting? Co- oh, what was the red shirting conversation? I mean, it wasn't our conversation. It's just a conversation. Red shirting, as you know it from sports, yeah. yes. 
Yeah. And so it happens in school now that people want to hold back the youngest kids, the kids born just before the cutoff. Um, so they'll hold them to the next year to start school so that they're older and stronger, right? Really? Oh my God. Yeah. This is a real thing. If you're a parent, don't you want to like, don't you want your kid out the fuck your house? You would think. Sooner but no. rather than later? No, people want their kids uh, to be stronger and bigger and whatever. And it's mostly Malcolm Gladwell's fault because right. of outliers. Yes. But the problem is, so say this happens, uh, the cutoff uh, in Canada and in most places is December 21st or December 31st. So a lot of like people with November or December birthdays might choose to hold their kids back. It's more popular in the States, but it's gaining popularity here. But then the problem is, then the September and October people are the youngest. And then they don't like that. So they start holding things back. And eventually you're going to have seven-year-olds in kindergarten. And you're going to start the morning the night before at 11 p.m. And I'm just saying things have to start somewhere. And there has to be a fucking limit on what indicates the morning or kindergarten. If I were a parent and I had one of those kids, like whatever you're talking about, December. Yeah, yeah, sure. Or I think it would be like an August kid in the States. I would 100% stick my kid in with the older kids and hope that my kid kicks everybody else's ass. I know you wouldn't sink or swim (laughs) and the whole thing. But yeah, people get sensitive and they care about sports and they don't want their kid to be behind or struggle and so they think another year of more maturity will help them. If I had a kid, they'd have my jeans, obviously, which are very short, and Yasik's jeans, which are tallish. And then it's a crapshoot. Either they're going to be really short or average height. So going to play basketball, probably hockey, is not going to be an option. Um, tennis? Tennis or golf? Would be the sport. <laughs> okay. And? <laughs> yeah. And so you're saying there there are no age restrictions here? No. Like like I size is not as of an issue. Okay, but also people want their kids to be braver and more mature and, you know, I don't know, less likely to wet themselves. And so they keep them home for an extra year of maturity is often the phrase that's used. Yeah. I'm just saying given the opportunity, my choice would not be to hold back my choice would be like, get in there right now. Right. And the reason I brought this up was because your thing was, if you're up, we should all be up this early, Mm -hmm. but then it wouldn't be any different. Then you would just have to get up even earlier to be ahead of the game. So you don't actually want people up earlier. What? I, I get so frustrated when I'm up and nobody else is up and I'm like, who can I call? I need an answer to this now. (laughs) I don't understand you. The whole point of getting up early and working in the middle of the night is that nobody will talk to you and you can focus. Yeah, but I need answers on certain things. Sometimes I'm like text, I text you and I'm like waiting for you to wake up. You never disappoint me though. Like you always get back to me probably like by 6.15. Oh yeah, yeah, for sure. Some people I have to wait till fucking eight or nine. Well, 6.15 is morning though. That's different. Like that's, but not 4.30. Oh, like, no, there know, are that's some that's... people for whom 6.15 is, that's not, like, they're not getting back to me at 6.15. They're still in deep REM. Is that a thing? Is that the right way of saying REM? I think we just say REM sleep <laughs> at that point. <laughs> was that, like, duppy freestyle? Oh, it just, it was, no, it was just a bit of, like, <laughs> we're old because, you know, REM is, uh, is... <laughs> still the phrase that's seared in your mind. 
I feel like people say REM sleep now. Like it's a it's a phrase. It's like saying Kleenex. Oh, you and etymology. I love etymology. For fuck's sake. It's wonderful. Don't pretend. This reminds me of like skipping grades. Do they still skip grades? No, it's like a not done thing. So that is expired now? Mostly. Yeah, why? Oh, because like- is I should say as is being held back. Right. That's why all this is such a thing because people are neither skipped nor held back anymore. I'm just asking because, I mean, obviously it's been so long since I was in school, but I went to one of those schools where they didn't have skipped grades, but they did have certain classes in certain grades that were slashes, like four or five instead of a four. Well, uh, yeah, but that happens a lot now. Oh, still? Or like You mean like a a mixed class? Yeah, that's a huge Yeah, like half year fours and half year five. Yeah, I would say that is like almost more common than not in Toronto schools, for example. But there are like, so there's four slash five, but then there's four period and five period. It depends, I guess. But split classes are much more common than I remember them being. Yeah, I remember it was not that common when I was growing up. Mm -hmm. And yeah, you're telling me now that it's more common. Did you skip a grade? Yeah, why? that's what I was, I was baiting you. Oh, for fuck's sake. I was waiting for you to get back to etymology. <laughs> no, I mean, we're not etymologying anything anymore. We are but if st- you are gearing up to give me the gears about etymology, you better actually have a follow-up there. No, I was just saying last week, like Poor all you shot. could do was like etymologize and we're done that today. No, everybody loved it. Uh, n- the end. Okay. Um, the end, Reese Witherspoon. So a lot of you have sent over this fast company profile of Reese Witherspoon's company, Hello Sunshine, suggesting it for discussion on Show Your Work. And in a bad display of Show Your Work, I didn't read it until probably 20 minutes before we started this podcast. I said to Duanna, yeah, people have been sending over this Reese Witherspoon thing, but I feel like we've talked about Reese Witherspoon, so... uh." And then you read it and... 15 seconds into reading it, you were like, we got to talk about this Reese Witherspoon thing. So then I started reading it and 15 seconds into me reading it, I was like, yeah, we got to do Reese Witherspoon. So here we are. Reese Witherspoon, Fast Company Profile, all kinds of work. Why do you think you were skeptical about what it might be? Well, in yet another display or layering on displays of bad show your work, I assumed that it was things we already knew. Right. About Reese as uh, the person who got, you know, everybody together for Big Little Lies or Reese as, you know, kind of the type A producer who blah, 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 right? Like the things that are kind of accepted as part of her personality by now. Yeah. Over the last few months or over the last year, really, there's been Big Little Lies before that, Gone Girl, Wild, you know, she's got a thing going with Jennifer Aniston. They're going to do that morning show um, series that was Apple TV's or, you know, Apple's series television arms first major acquisition that was greenlit immediately for two series. And they paid something Well, they paid big, big money for it. So I thought we had covered those things and hit them. Um, however, uh, once again, This is much more detailed and much more insightful into the broader aspects of Reese Witherspoon's vision. And, you know, we probably should have known that because this is what Fast Company does, right? Like they have angles and insights that we don't always hear about. 
you know, I, on the one hand, I was surprised even at the name of the company, Hello Sunshine, because you, I had always thought that Reese Witherspoon was type A films. We always knew that. Uh, and they go into why it isn't and why this is a different company, both in name and in structure. Uh, but yeah, they dig deep. That said, at the outset of this article, they describe, you know, Reese and this and that. And before going into sort of all her media holdings and the things she worked with, they describe the office and how, you know, low key it is and how it feels very warm and welcoming. And I kind of went like, is this something we do for male CEOs? I don't feel like the decor of the office is a thing. I do remember, um, maybe a year ago or more on this podcast discussing Jessica Alba in a not dissimilar profile. And they talked all about the succulents in the office and how important it was for Jessica that there be succulents. And I'm not sure this would happen to somebody who wasn't a male CEO or a celebrity or both. The endless discussion of like decor and furniture threatened to throw me off of this profile. But we persevered. Yeah. Did and it bother you? I had the same thought, and I tried to then think of examples of profiles like this that are about male celebrities and whether or not the decor comes up. And I was able to come up with um, certain examples, but it's not done in the same way. Like, there are no mentions of the couch, but what you'll get from, for example, Channing Tatum profile is a bust that he had made, I think, of Matthew McConaughey when they were working on Magic Mike. Um, and you'll get a description of what poster is on the wall. And inevitably, it's like a classic film or an inspirational piece of work in in cinema that, you know, you get the, the idea, yeah, right? Yeah, and I don't mind it in a magazine profile as a whole, like setting the scene, yeah. right? Like the, yeah, the iconic piece of artwork or, you know, failing that, what the person orders in the restaurant or whatever. But in the context of an office and uh, a CEO, I felt a little weird about it. Yeah, I, I think that there are certain checkboxes that these profiles, whether it's in Fast Company or in Vogue, always hit when it comes to women. And it's, yeah, the decor, the outfit, and the food. There's always some eating. With the women. Yeah, it's true. It's true. And she eats in this. Yeah, there's definitely like a avocado of, chips, I believe. Uh, avocado oil chips. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Which, so, did we fucking need to know this? Yeah, there's there's always some fucking eating. Um, and you're, no, you're I right. do think that I that is where I can say that I, I don't think there's a lot of fucking eating with the men. No. If we were profiling Jeff Bezos right now, or God, I don't know, Ashton Kutcher, who has a million, like, Silicon Valley investments or whatever. No, I don't think we'd be learning about how he artfully twirls his carbonara as he talks about whatever it is. Yeah. But as you say, we persisted. Because there's so much in this article that, as you say, not only is great, is good work, but that we didn't know. Right off the hop. I mean, I didn't know, for example, that uh, after she had already made four films at 17, she went and, you know, worked in production. Yeah. I mean, they explained that she took an internship for a few months, uh, which 
I didn't know it either, but I, when I read it, it didn't surprise me. I was like, oh, of course you did. Like, of course you were the perky little intern, like bopping around with coffee trays all. Can I get anything? Can't you see Reese Witherspoon doing this? I can totally see her doing it, but at the same time, when you've already been in four movies at 17, I don't know that a lot of people would have done it. No, uh, and I I don't disagree with that. And I also just flashed forward 20 years to when Reese Witherspoon is going to remake The Intern. Uh, Like, you know, it was Robert De Niro and Anne Hathaway, but now it's going to be Reese Witherspoon and somebody who is currently a zygote. Um, So stand by for that in 20 years. No, she talked about how she wanted to learn about the editing process and sound production and all the technical elements that go into making a film and a TV show. It's especially, I mean, that's a personal interest for me because I work in production and you do too. I work in a broadcast building. We have interns coming in a lot. And I will say that a lot of the ones who want to be on camera don't express much of an interest in the other and the other elements that go into making the TV show. And I always try and encourage that, but it's not, I'm putting quotes around this, sexy. Right. To them yet. Incredibly sexy to us. Well, yet is really interesting because that's kind of what this whole piece is about, right? Somebody who wants to be on air or an actress or whatever – isn't interested in production yet because they don't yet see what Reese Witherspoon figured out maybe earlier than most, uh, which has been her MO for the last few years, which is if you want to see it, you have to make it. If you want to see, you know, women on screen or stories that aren't being told or anything of the kind, you have to make it yourself, which is why production becomes so exciting. Also because it's an awesome ballet. It's fantastic. But that MO that she figured out earlier is what drives everything in this profile. So Hello Sunshine uh, is has a number of exciting projects on the go. Like they introduce one every few paragraphs. And I was like, wait, do more about that. Like, tell me more about that story and what's happening. But the most interesting thing to me that I didn't put together, even though it's not by any means a secret, is that Reese Witherspoon's company and all of the projects that they are developing are based in books, are based in novels. That's right. And that this is something that she hit upon early on on Instagram. Uh, In 2013, she, her second Instagram post was about a book and… It was a J. Courtney Sullivan book. Yeah. Yeah. And it was, uh, and then it became like this conversation, an impromptu book club that developed with her followers. And from there, she now, to this point, has become a major, major influencer with publishing companies who are constantly sending her work, but who are now actually timing the releases of books to her recommendations. So that's how much of a player she's become with the publish uh, with the publishing industry. And look, I'm going to be really honest. I I neither love nor dislike Reese Witherspoon. She's always been that kind of person as a performer, as a celebrity where I kind of am like mm. like I you know, you're you're I'm interested. She's never boring maybe certain dresses, but fundamentally never boring, never boring on a red carpet. But I was always looking with a little side eye. And yet when I read all of this, 
I kind of went, oh, it's so legit. Her love for books comes through even in the third person. It's so obvious. Nobody who didn't love books would take on these kinds of projects, would be able to see the cinematicness in all the projects. She snapped up little fires everywhere. She has that uh, very much anticipated Zendaya project, The Gilded Years. And it's just so obvious that you can't be excited about these projects and do their due diligence if you are not a devoted reader. You and I are voracious readers. And it's so obvious, even through the third person, that she really, she is the reader that she portrays herself to be. This is not a marketing scam. And the common thread here among all the books that she has been supporting is that um, it's female authors. She is a champion of women who write. And yet, like, yeah, of course she is. And absolutely those stories are, you know, necessarily women's stories as a result. But also that's just what she likes to read, you know, which I find very authentic. It comes back again and again to just do the thing that you want to do, that you like to do, as opposed to chasing what you think the market wants. Essentially, Reese Witherspoon has talked uh, broadcasters and studios back into making projects for women. But I also think in addition to it being just what she likes, it's a defense of what women like, period. And I talk about this specifically um, in relation to the publishing world and literature because just as it is in Hollywood with um, scripted entertainment, in publishing, men's stories have gotten more, I don't know, prestige and gravitas. We have heard from many female authors. One of them, Meg Wolitzer, for example, who I recently interviewed on The Social, who, um, you know, when a Jonathan Franzen or a whatever comes out with a book. Any of the Jonathans. Yes. It's seen as some sort of um, serious, intellectual. Polemic American yes. exploration of whatever, ennui. Yes. And there has been lots and lots of conversation about how the people who dictate good taste in books are uh, living that bias. Paris Review of Books, the New York Review of Books, the Journal, whatever you want to call those review sites that like or uh, outlets that always tell you what book is important and what writer is important. They have a preference for men who write seriously in long sentences, 800 like page fucking books. Who take themselves very seriously. That's right. And It has made women who write feel as though the things they write about and the stories that they write about are not as important and not as intellectual. Famously, Jennifer Weiner, who has written dozens of books, uh, Good in Bed and In Her Shoes, which was the Cameron Diaz and Toni Collette movie and dozens of others, uh, has taken the New York Times book section to task for this because she talks about how despite being a massive earner, a bestseller many times over, uh, and telling stories that obviously as a result of those sales resonate with women, she's not given as much respect because yes, somebody over there feels that they're not, uh, esoterically, you know, exploratory of the male pain enough. 
That's right. And it is the equivalent of something that you have always, always sort of pounded out, which is that shows by, you know, Shonda Rhimes like Grey's Anatomy and Scandal are not given the same consideration during award season, which is the prestige, right? As Mad Men and Breaking Bad. And when that happens, it conditions the audience to see it that way, to see shows like Grey's Anatomy and Scandal as light, L-I-T-E, and Breaking Bad and Mad Men as not light. I have friends who are women, who are declared feminists, who have a look that crosses their face when they hear that I somebody might be watching Grey's Anatomy and watching a rom-com, for example, um, and prefer, you know, whatever, that show, the other show. Right. I mean, the and even more glaringly, you know, the, it used to be that the dividing line was, oh, well, those shows are network. That was the euphemism for a while. But even the female-run, female-driven shows that are on cable, uh, like Nurse Jackie, which you used to love, and like The Affair. Big Little Lies was disparaged by the television uh, reviewer for the New York Times. Absolutely. And the dirty word that gets used, in addition to light, L-I-T-E, is soapy. Yeah. You never hear of a show that has a man at the forefront described as soapy no matter how many people Don Draper sleeps with. Yeah. But Mad Men was fucking soapy. Of course it was. And it was great as a result. Yes. If soapy means character-driven and exciting, then yeah, soapy by all means. But this is what Reese Witherspoon is doing. She's like, oh yeah, I'm, I'm, these projects, these books written by women, these stories written by women, sometimes for women are important. Um, I'm going to take them on. And I'm going to add value to them. And so now in publishing, they're looking at, this is what the trickle-down effect is going to be. In publishing, they're going to, these days, because now anytime you take on an author and anytime you take on a story, you think about the book sales and then you think about the movie rights or the TV rights. So now when an acquisition happens, they're going to say to themselves, what is this book? Can I sell it to the movies? Wow, Reese Witherspoon has this company. We're going to be able to sell. This is the story. It's making those stories more coveted and more valuable, hence giving more opportunity to perhaps authors, women, who may not have had a chance, let's say, as recently as 10 years ago. And, you know, the other thing is they're not just stories that are important. Without regurgitating the whole article, there's a point where she talks about how you know, they're, they're pitching her some stories and adaptations. She's going, but nothing here is funny, she says to a group of people who are developing this, the show in her office, referring to, you know, a project. My point being, it's not just important books written by women, which is to say heavy books. Stories that Hello Sunshine is developing are interesting and important because they have Reese's interest and therefore she's a bellwether for other women who will be interested, not because they are, you know, the stories you must be reading, like they're vegetables. Yeah. They're fun. They're compelling. They're exciting. They're stories she wants to see and play and do. A story is a story is a story. Um, and it makes me crazy. And this goes uh, very selfishly to back to what we do or how we started with gossip and our assertion that gossip was a story, is a story, that we tell stories, that these are like we're hitting on the same themes. 
Well, I think the active term there is in the telling, right? Like the the facts that happen can be seen anywhere. This is what the internet is. It's people know what happens on an Instagram or when a marriage breaks up or in any other place. What's interesting about the story is how you unfold it and how you tell it and what you add to it. And the people that we love to watch and the people we trust to tell us stories are the people who can unfold it and tell it in exciting ways. Well, it's amazing to me, though, throughout history, how we've repositioned our perspective about what a good story is and who gets to tell it. I mean, in the time of Shakespeare, for example, that's fucking soapy as shit. You know, like when he was writing those plays, he was writing to a, a like a, a, a demo that needed to understand cheating, being mad at your fucking dad. That's the highbrow stuff. Shakespeare is full of sex jokes and like poop humor. Exactly. And back then it was not seen as highbrow. It was only later, well after his death, that scholars were like, wow, I mean, this is, I don't know, iambic pentameter at his best. And, you know, let's glorify it to literature. Right. But back then he was actually writing to entertain for the people who came to the theater, the Globe, um, and to make them aware of the highs and lows, the soapy. Yeah, he was cranking it out too. Yes. Like he wrote a million of them because he had to keep them coming. Yeah. He, he was the Shonda in this situation. Exactly. And the people he was writing for were into the soapiness of it. The Like the highs and lows in one act. Let's call it an episode where in that act you get like, oh, that happened? And, you know, by the, I don't know, five minute mark, you need somebody to gasp. You need somebody to cry. Um, so... What, to me, Reese Witherspoon is doing is reimagining or rebranding a certain work, literary work, um, and making it, you know, putting a new shine on it and saying, hey, you know what? I'm this power producer. These are the books I'm into. um, And I'm telling you right now that this is where the gravitas is. This is where the prestige is. And she's kind of end-arounding the whole system, which I think is really important. There's a section in the article where she talks about wanting to, you know, uh, set up a shingle at a studio and her husband, who's an agent, was like, don't do it because then you have to do what they want to do. Then you have to subscribe to their idea of what is an important or compelling or whatever kind of story and encouraged her to go out on her own. And I think that is like Reese Witherspoon has proven in her taste to be quite prescient in lots of ways that in terms of etymology is a word that I I still have a little trouble with getting out, by the way, prescient. I'll worry about that pronunciation late into the night. I say prescient. Yeah. So, you know, Um, but she obviously has had a sixth sense about things and she's ahead of the game, obviously. I think about all the studios and uh, networks who would love to be in bed with publishers, for example, and haven't been able to crack it, and she has this sixth sense, it also, I can't help but think it's a thumbing of the nose at not only all those book critics, but all the television and film critics who still tend to choose men over and over again. Mm -hmm. You know, there was a big kerfuffle this week because uh, Variety had announced a night with the showrunners. Uh, had 12 showrunners for this annual event at the Jeremy Hotel. And of the 12, 11 were men, not a single woman on the drama side. But there were 11 men, six men in drama and five men and one woman from mom on the comedy side. 
And they didn't see it. They did not see that these women who were show running shows and, you know, immediately, of course, Twitter started rhyming them off by the dozen. I was right in there. Yeah. They did not see that these women were telling stories that were compelling, were telling stories that were worthy of being highlighted. It was happening. It wasn't that nobody had seen it. It was that it was happening under their noses and that they are not conditioned to see it. Yeah. And then it took Liz Hanna, uh, the wonderkind writer who wrote the post as like a an experiment, and then it was made a year later. It took her about 24 hours to round up a giant, giant list of female showrunners who are having an event this coming Wednesday uh, that's going to be live streamed. But the idea is these stories are happening under the noses of all these studios and networks and agencies who say, oh, but we just wish we could find more people. We we wish we could find these stories and tell these stories, but they're just, we're having trouble finding them. <laughs> and Reese Witherspoon is laughing mm-hmm. in her oak-beamed office with sunlight streaming in or whatever the hell the, the yeah. article says and going, yeah, we're over here, bitches, in the paperback section. Fuck you. Read a book. Well, she says this really interesting thing, and I... I really want to just kind of um, deep dive into her wording of it. She says, quote, a lot of us are having to step up into leadership positions that we didn't know we were capable of. I definitely feel that in my life, having to step up into leadership positions. Um, it's a really interesting turn of phrase about this, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm interested in what you're going to pick into because I have an opinion, but I don't know if it's the same way you're going. Well, I don't know that I have an opinion. I just, I just popped out like that. The wording of that just popped out at me having to compelled to you know, you could also see it as, well, we didn't have any more choice. We had to surge forward. We had to like, be like, nope, we got to take the top now. Um, it's a really, really fascinating way of looking at what change is going to be like. Well, you know, I mean, let's be real here. Reese Witherspoon is an insanely rich, wealthy, powerful white woman in Hollywood. She doesn't have to do anything. I don't know what her net worth is, but that Southern clothing store alone, that Draper James, is enough for her grandchildren to retire on. So when she says have to... Uh, your word compelled to is is really attractive or that the alternative is worse. The alternative to sit back and watch nobody tell these stories and watch nobody pick up all the stuff that's being left on the floor that could be glorious is an untenable alternative. And so have to means given the choice between stepping up and doing something I'm terrified of and don't know what I'm doing and leaving all these stories on the floor, I'm going to not know what I'm doing. But you know what? I'll speak personally about the way I see leadership. It's not attractive to me. You know, I, there are certain things I want to do. I like to create and I want to have a good time and I want to be on my own time. Leadership requires a willingness to put people on your shoulders and to take on pressure and a lot of responsibility. I don't naturally gravitate to that kind of role. So when someone, I hear someone say, 
you have to, or I had to assume a bigger leadership role. I actually see that as, oh, I get it. Cause probably you didn't really want to, like probably you would have been content with being in your own fucking space and driving on your own time and not having to like be responsible for people to, um, carry a load. I mean, I'm inherently selfish. I prefer just to carry my load. No thanks to everybody else. So to me, there is definitely a courage that comes with that kind of leadership that not a lot of people, I'm putting my hand up, really want. And when you, ha- when you do it, when you have to do it, it's because you have to do it. I mean, I guess there's some push me, pull you here going on because she has said, you know, I used to just sit back and watch scripts roll in. Uh, there was that great quote a year or so ago from Mindy Kaling and Reese Witherspoon said to, uh, to Mindy, you know, gosh, roles just used to roll in the door to me and now they don't. Now I have to make them. And Mindy said, Reese, I've never had a role in my life that I didn't make up for myself. So those are degrees of have to, you have to make roles for yourself or there won't be any. Well, some people just sit back and don't have the roles anymore. Well, look, what I'm trying to say here, the comparison I'm making here is that like, for instance, somebody like, I would like to be somebody like Leonardo DiCaprio. That is not a leader. No, but it doesn't have to be, is your point. That is the privilege. I would, you know, I think that if you ask most people, that's the default. Would you like to sit back and not have to? Uh, but well, then, shit, like that seems pretty good. I guess so. But then I come back to her first company was called Type A Films. This is somebody who I suspect is not able to sit still. Like uh, one of the things I loved about this article is that she goes into a couple of her failures, not that they're such embarrassing failures, but a couple of missteps that she made production wise. But by and large, everything this woman does turns to gold. No, no, so, not being able to sit still is something I can certainly relate to. I like to be busy. Not being able to sit still and then launching yourself into a leadership role are two different things. I don't think so. I think leadership role means creating something in your own image and then people are like, hey, I like that. I want to do that. And it becomes busy enough that you need more people. I firmly believe that if this venture was something that could be conducted from her basement then she would be doing that. It's just that it's gotten this big and this successful that she needs this organization of people. And like, you know, make no mistake, I'm sure there's some uh, megalomania or whatever in there. Everybody likes to feel like what they're doing is is bigger than themselves, even if, as you point out, that means being responsible for others as well. My point is, I think there's probably a mix of both sentiments here, both wanting to uh, you know, having to step up, as you say, you see it as a maybe an obligation and I see it as maybe more of a compulsion. You step up and you make yourself a target. Like that is, you think about a line, you're at the front of the line, that's you. Yeah, um, but what's the alternative? You'd be anonymous. You'd be nobody in the background. Yeah. No. That, felt, that feels good. No, that feels <laughs> terrible. Yeah. I should look up and see, uh, I mean, are you going to look up her astrological sign or am I? Because I, <laughs> I feel really like, to me, maybe I have more of a kinship with Reese Witherspoon than I realize. But to me, I can clearly see that that would never have been an option for this woman, even when she was 
23 and never imagining that she would have to create all these opportunities for herself and, you know, hundreds of others. Well, I will say that, you know, when we talk about leadership and compulsion and having to, there's leadership and then there's style of leadership. And typically the way leadership has been defined up until recently, and we're still working on it, is a very masculine, very ego-driven style of leadership. And what we're getting here, there was like a significant amount of time devoted in this profile to leadership slash partnership or leading in partnership where she, Nicole Kidman comes up with Big Little Lies, Little Fires Everywhere comes up with Kerry Washington, that there's Reese and then there's Reese saying, I want to work with you on this. I want to work with you on this. Let's lead this together. Um, It's, it's a much more open kind of partnership than that traditional old school boys club behind closed doors partnerships um, that are created in membership, uh, exclusive membership uh, vibe that we talk about often when it comes to men. Well, because you didn't ever hear about it like that. Yeah. You'd say you'd hear about it where some auteur or other would say, anyway, I had this idea and it was amazing. So I call up Miramax and was like, I'm going to make it. And then I called up Leo and said, let's do this in May. And then I called up so-and-so. Like, it's all very commanding. And you're right that what you're talking about is very much more collaborative. About if we do this together, then we get to be together. Then we get to hang together, which is what it feels like. But there's no sense of like secret handshake here too. You know, we're smoking in the parlor with cigars and we stand up at the end of the bourbon that we have together and we have a secret handshake and it becomes the secret handshake is this is the work we're going to do, but this is the work that we're going to keep to ourselves. Do you yeah, know what I mean? I do, except maybe I've never really thought of this before, but as you were talking, I was thinking the only people that seems secret to is us. Like to those dudes who were having the bourbons and doing the handshakes, that wasn't secret. That was just life. That was yeah. just how shit got done. But and And this is what she's doing, like what is relatable to us when she says, oh, she called up Nicole Kidman and she called up Kerry Washington. I found our thing. Well, shit, that was immediately recognizable because that's what women have been doing. That's what we do all the time. I found the movie we're going to see this weekend. Yeah. Oh my God, I found this new clothing store that we can go to. You got to read this book. Let's talk about this. Let's do a thing. Yes. Let's make a thing. Yeah, it's it's very much a new paradigm, uh, but a very old one. What's new about it is that it's being profiled in a successful, non-skeptical tone in, you know, a publication that has profiled a million tech pros. But that value is associated with it that is tangible. Um, And listen, this is a murky conversation because we have a lot of people talking these days about status quo value assessment that… Sorry, back it up there, Harvard Business School. (laughs) What was that? So what that means is… and it's No, say the whole phrase again. Status Status quo value assessment. All right. Is, so, that a, is that an acronym? No. S Q No. V A? It is. Okay. So what that is, is attaching a value to something that is based on a status quo. So the old model of doing things 
And is that really the way we move forward? Right? Are you going to talk to me about Bitcoin? No, I'm not. <laughs> no, it's like um, back in the day, the mold that we're trying to break, what was considered success is monetary assignment, right? This is how much this is valued. And money is controlled by old institutions. And therefore, the old institutions are still telling us Number one, what is valuable? And number two, how we should measure value. Right. I so, can sell this here and I can't that's sell that right. there. And yep. so when we're talking about the fact that these projects that Reese Witherspoon is carrying out are lucrative now, are we perpetuating the status quo value system? Are we still attaching the quality of something or at least its you know, success measure by a standard and a mold that we're trying to break to begin with. So no, and I'll tell you why. I agree with you, but this is part of the conversation. Once again, it's part of the article. She talks about how, and don't ask me, I'd have to go back to find where she got her research, but Reese Witherspoon was talking about how women were not going to the movies. Uh, they fell off. That's not that they don't have the money to spend or that they don't desire to be entertained. It's that they are willing to spend their money in different places, whether that is impulse buying books on Amazon to read on their Kindles immediately, like me, constantly, too many at a time, or on Netflix subscriptions or iTunes movies or whatever. That was the impetus that made her suggest that Big Little Lies was in fact a series and not a movie. Uh, that you go where the people are. The value is still there. The the money to be spent and therefore the value of the product you're making is still there, but you have to change your delivery system. I agree. I agree with that. What The reason I brought that up is because, you know, I have conversations a lot with colleagues on our talk show and, you know, we have people coming in and out who are saying to us like, hey, let's also remember though that like we need to find different ways of measuring success, that success doesn't always have to be attached to money. And or numbers or whatever is the traditional measure in yes, your industry, yes? I agree about, I agree to a point. That said, I do think that in this case, when women's projects are being seen as profitable ventures, I can't see a downside to that. I guess the downside is that once again, women have to defend their right to exist, right? Like, oh, you're kidding. 50% of the population would like to see some projects about themselves. You don't say. Go fucking figure. It's a bit undignified to have to once again, make noise to say, oh, and by the way, we exist. And by the way, we too consume art made in our own images. It's the same argument about, you know, projects that have non-white leads in them for the first time. You don't say that Black Panther did well, that Crazy Rich Asians is poised to do well. Like, imagine that people like to see themselves on screen. So the downside, I suppose, is in the continued stupidity of those who never saw that to begin with. But no, there's not a, there's not an economic downside to 
rubbing people's noses in the monetary success. No. Fuck, how do I get my book in front of Reese Witherspoon? I think you just did. <laughs> no, I don't think so. But I, yeah, I think that that's now like Hello Sunshine is, if if I've taken away one thing selfishly, go, but going back to my narcissism about this profile in Fast Company, it's going to be, yeah, how the fuck do I get my book in front of Reese Witherspoon? Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Okay, so um, Variety has, you know, their Actors on Actors feature. And this week, they have like a glorious cover because their actor on actor, actors on actors feature is Issa Rae and Michael B. Jordan interviewing each other, talking to each other, like making me want them to be boyfriend and girlfriend. I know that is derivative and high school and I'm sorry. Was this sent in by Kathleen? This, uh, uh, <laughs> no, I, you know, Kathleen is very territorial about Michael B. Jordan or as she calls him, Michael Bay Jordan. But I, she I also, can't believe you repeated that. <laughs> and she also loves Issa Rae, like in a really unhealthy way, equally unhealthy way. So I wonder if she would like say, okay, Issa, you can have him. <laughs> or is this like the black mirror of Kathleen's life where they cancel each other out, right? Like either of them is meant to be Kathleen's person forever. Yeah. So the two of them together in this, yeah. in this scenario is the darkest timeline. Like... I mean, to get even more annoying and like sort of speak um, the way she would refer to it, if she could only have one boo, who would it be? Oh, Isa. She would choose Isa yeah. for sure. Because... Look at this cover though. Oh, the, no, it's, well, I don't know. Uh, my first reaction to the cover, which of course we'll link to, was, oh, they're both so beautiful. But then I look at it again and I'm like, could... Michael B. Jordan possibly make a little more room for Issa Rae <laughs> on that cover. Like, he's standing, arms akimbo, as they say, and she's peeking out from behind him. And, like, dude, you know the standard width of a magazine cover. Just uh, make a little room. Yasik is, is making a face. He agrees with me. Yasik is wondering about his baby blue pants. His mom jeans that he's wearing? His baby blue pants and his very tight top. I'm not mad at any of that. <laughs> I mean, I neither. Just, I just want him to make some room. Nobody asked you, Yasik. Um, Do you want a microphone? <laughs> Do you want a microphone? Nobody asked you. He looks like nobody is complaining about the outfit here. Like, no. tell him the outfit is fine. I don't want to because I don't want him to believe that uh, when it's show your work after dark that uh, the, the Yasek commentary stream is a secret third track that you can link to. <laughs> anyway, um, it's a great exchange between the two of them. And they talk a lot about what we were just saying um, when we were talking about Reese Witherspoon, about finding what's right for you, Issa, Issa describes what it has been like to be on HBO 
and tell a story that she thinks is so specific and then meet a dude in a MAGA hat who says, I love your show. (laughs) And how can she, how to process that? Um, Good for her for, you know, getting through that conversation because I don't know that I would have. Well, and then she talks about the fact that um, she she was hesitant in taking like certain kinds of roles. You know, she said that uh, she would see breakdowns all the time. And to me, it was just like I could never play this lead role. And, um, you know, she would say, I just knew she said, I just knew the type that they would go for. And I was like, I'm not even going to bother. And now something has shifted where I'm like, fuck that. Yeah, I'm going to go after that. I've seen that people have been receptive. And then he says, quote, I told my agents, I don't want to go out for any role that's written for African-Americans in the breakdown. I want to go for any white males. That's it. That's all I want to do. Because me playing that role is going to make it what it is. And so he told his agents this. And she said, so what'd they say? He said that they were very supportive of it. Um, And he said that my idea for the type of career I want moving forward is I want to play the roles that impact people, that make people think and feel. I don't ever want to get caught in the machine. Um, And uh, so he said, so as much as I want to be the guy that's portraying these characters, if it's not right, if it doesn't fit, I'm not going to take it just for the sake of being in that role. I would much, much rather see somebody else that has those tools and that talent take it and be the best version of themselves. Anyway, so what do you think of that? Well, there's so much in that small little paragraph that you just laid out for us. My first thought was that where Issa was concerned when she said, oh, I'm not going to go out for these lead roles, uh, in that context, it sounded as though she was talking about those roles being uh, maybe written for women who were not funny, not uh, the kind of goofy character that, you know, Issa plays a character called Issa and there's a, the blurred line there, but that were a little more, you know, traditionally sexy or female lead or whatever than she saw herself as. Is that, is, would you say that's how you read that as well? Well, first I'd like to say that somebody is getting their car towed outside the house, which is why you hear the tow truck beeping. So, you know, this is city living. How could you even hear that over my insightful comments? <laughs> um, as for Isa, I listen. I what I I think what I love and what we all love about Isa Ray is that she has never seemed to me in this iteration of herself that you know we have gotten since Insecure that she's a people pleaser and. Uh, the reason why I don't relate to it, but the reason why I am drawn to it is because I kind of am a people pleaser. You know, when I'm at work, I, I'm a yes person. Will you do this? Will you do that? Yes. Yes. If I can't say yes, I'm sorry. I want to try. It's just that I've already said yes to three other things. And there's something really really, um, like, uh, where do I go? I have to, I have to consistently, even at this advanced age, remind myself to like, keep relearning that lesson. What I love about that piece of information and also what you've gleaned from her 
uh, is that you're right. She is not a people pleaser and hasn't been even pre-insecure. If you don't know the story, of course, Issa Rae had a web series called Awkward Black Girl many years ago. And, you know, she was approached a lot to adapt it into a show. And there were at least two false starts, two false shows, uh, two shows that would have been, that weren't quite right. Uh, One, I believe she worked with Shonda on, one iteration of the show, uh, another version of the show, both times. I like how we just drop in Shonda by a first name basis and like she's someone who we just talked to five minutes ago. Listen, (laughs) this is the glory of having a singular name. Shonda... (laughs) Rhymes and Mindy Kaling talk about being first, only different. I'm saying there is power in being the first, only different one with one's name. Right. As Shonda would agree with me. Probably so would Reese and Issa. But nonetheless, uh, there were a couple of situations where she couldn't come to terms with the kind of shows she was being asked to make or she couldn't get the characters to the place that the studio was asking her for, and so the shows didn't get made. And that's incredibly powerful, even though it was seen as, you know, a failure at the time. Oh, it didn't come together. Oh, the show didn't go to air or whatever. Imagine being confident enough in your own vision when you have not yet had a show on any kind of television, let alone HBO, to wait for the right combination of people and the right alchemy of stories and really to wait for yourself to be grown up and ready. Uh, I think that's really unusual. So I I like that that's what you took from her. Oh, yeah. And I I think she's really good at expressing it too. I mean, I read, I think it was a few weeks ago when she talked about walking away, I think, from an ABC deal because she wasn't into the fucking show notes. And the reason why it came up was because she was talking about Kenya Barris and um, and Blackish, and that she, you know, what I gleaned from it, my takeaway was with it was like she was complimenting Kenya because she couldn't work like that. You know, she she was almost saying like I don't know how he does it because like, you know, I I couldn't because at the time ABC had canned an episode of Blackish because they considered it too polarizing. Yeah, it's the it was the the kneeling one. Yeah, it was about Colin Kaepernick, the NFL and all that and she considered it the the, the network didn't want to put that on the air and she was talking about the fact that like you know, she couldn't have stood for that. Because just to get tech for a second, a network, a broadcast network like an ABC or an NBC is giving a lot more notes weekly and consistently than networks uh, that are networks in name only, like HBO or Netflix, who are well known for letting their creators just do what they're going to do and having a lot more creative control and free reign. So, you know, she really lives by this beat by beat. I mean, almost every time I, I read something about what she does, whether it's in her written work, her acting work, even in her style work. I mean, she just hosted the CFDA's... Um, she just hosted the CFDAs. Kathleen wrote about it the other day, and she wore um, she wore a belt, and on the belt, it was a phrase: "Every N is a star." Um, I, I, she's just I I I I I really look to that, and I say, "Man, I wish I could be so 
committed to your vision. Yeah. And yeah, it takes a real strength in, in your own character, you know, in your own mind. And so that's a really interesting place that the Michael B. Jordan quote comes from. Because when you told me about this first and we were deciding to talk about it, you said that he said this after he did Fruitvale Station. Yes. And Fruitvale Station was the project that he did after Friday Night Lights uh, and after, I think, some incidental soap work or whatever before that. So maybe at that time he and Ryan Coogler already knew that they had some sort of magic between them and that Fruitvale Station was going to be as as well received as it was and take them both to another plane. But that's that's a bold thing to say at that point in your career too, when you've done two seasons of a show that nobody ever saw, uh, the critics love, but that nobody ever watched, and followed by an indie movie, which, you know, when he finished it, I don't think it was yet on the festival circuit to be making the noise that it was. Or... Is it that he was a hugely well-regarded actor by then and that it's a lot easier for somebody to say something like that? I'm only going to play characters that are not written for African-Americans when you are kind of the hottest game in town. I I mean, put it this way. Who else is a, a hot, young, black actor who can challenge him? Now, today, as, you know, in the past couple of years, maybe we have more names, but at the time of Fruitvale Station, there was nobody. He was the, he was the challenger to all the, the Ryan Goslings and the, God, I don't know, who would have gotten roles like that? Like the, the. Jake Gyllenhaal. Yeah. Yeah. I kept wanting to say Tobey Maguire and rejecting it in my head because we know, but uh, yeah, those sort of compelling, sexy, but thoughtful actors, there was nobody else who would challenge him who was a, who was an African-American. So why should he limit himself to kind of a lesser pool of actors to compete against, right? I hear you say that. And then I think about, okay, uh, first only different or the model that he would have had to follow when it comes to black actors. And so the names that spin out here would be like a Jamie Foxx, for example, Mm. who has an Oscar and who, but after, even after winning his Oscar, like, I don't know that Jamie Foxx was getting scripts sent to him where they were like, you're the lead. You're just the lead. You're carrying this. And And so go ahead. Well, and Jamie Foxx was, you know, still, I think of Jamie Foxx as the Jamie Foxx show. Uh, He was somebody who, you know, came into the industry with a different set of expectations around him. Michael B. Jordan burst onto the scene and was like, I'm an actor. Like, watch yourself. And of course, he'd already done The Wire uh, before Friday Night Lights. So he was showing chops early and often. But yeah, he didn't allow anybody to underestimate him or to try and put him in a, a lesser space. And that's what I think is beautiful. I, I, even though he burst onto the scene and he had no peer, I don't know that collectively in Hollywood with decision makers, they were leaning towards a Michael B. Jordan over a Ryan Gosling or over a Jake Gyllenhaal. And yet he was like, well, no, I'm telling you to. 
Yeah, and I'm not going to limit myself no. to only roles that are written for for black actors because those are a certain type of roles. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, no, just consider me for the role that's going to get me the Oscar yeah. or whatever it happens to be. Now, to your point, though, there is a privilege still in doing that for him that he has over many other actors of color still. Over almost all of them. That's right. Yes. You know, the there are many, many working actors, Asian actors, who have no choice but to take the script that's sent to them where they have to play your stereotypical Asian, maybe with an accent, a little bit goofy, long duck dongy, um, because they have to pay a bill. And there's a double-edged sword there. Uh, in screenwriting, the often the compulsion has been that uh, if the ethnicity is not specified in a script, it is often assumed to be default white. So uh, in order for there to be more diversity in roles, the... The idea is don't just say any ethnicity. Oh, we'll see everybody. We'll call everybody in because then it's too easy for the actors who come in to just accidentally wind up being all white or for the white actors to be the better performers, not because they are intrinsically better, but because they've been given more roles and so had more experience on camera and so forth. All this to say being overt about the ethnicity of the performer in script breakdowns in auditions is what gets more diversity into scripts. And that's what we want for all of the actors of color who haven't yet had those opportunities. Whereas, and Michael B. Jordan's statement is kind of, uh, you know, it kind of negates that a little bit. Yeah, that's where I wanted to take this with you, being a writer yourself, and if you're going to be specifying so as to give people more opportunity, and he's saying, I'm rejecting any of those scripts that specify ethnicity because, and I get where he's coming from. I think we all do, right? That at a certain point in the most ideal evolution of where we're going, yeah, when you read a story you you don't have one imagination for who it could be. It could be anyone. But we're not there yet. No, and let's be fair. Uh, the three projects that I mentioned that Michael B. Jordan had done, he did The Wire, he did Friday Night Lights, and he did Fruitvale Station. You could kind of use your imagination and make up a backstory for all of those characters, and they would have some things in common. Nobody was offering Michael B. Jordan the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. Nobody was offering him, God, you know, Gossip Girl. Like, the roles that were coming his way all did have an area in common, a kind of a, a worldview in common, and that was what he wanted to step away from because at that time... It's amazing that things have changed somewhat, maybe, allegedly, in only a few years. But at that time, that's what an African-American role would mean. We're going to tell a story about this person from the inner city who has had kind of a tough break, but has an inner life and is interesting. And, you know, he had done that. So I see that. I hope that we're getting to a different place now where now there are roles that are coming to him that are 
you know, designated as uh, could only be played by African Americans and are not all of kind of the same stripe acting wise. And he didn't say, I will never. He said, I told them I would never back then when he was in a different place than he is now. So I hoped that that would be the case. And obviously, you know, Black Panther speaks to that, right? Like there's no illusions about who or what that character. It wasn't written for a white guy. No, absolutely. As he says, he wants to take like, you know, the roles he wants to take on. It does remind me of that conversation we had a couple of weeks ago about Sandra Oh and how when she was reading Killing Eve, she had to be told by her agent that, oh, she's going to be Eve. Right. She was being offered the lead role. That's right. And so it's a little bit of an adjacent comment to what MBJ is saying here in that the roles he's going after. And we talk about putting yourself in a position or insisting on this is what is going to come to you and this is what you'll take. Whereas someone like Sandra, who has been in the business a minute longer, is, you know, had to sort of face face the fact that she had been conditioned and that she was unlearning that conditioning. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and I, and I see it from both sides. Uh, you see that, uh, just to pull a name out of the hat, because we were talking about it earlier, if Michael B. Jordan saw the Mad Men script show up on his desk, he would not assume that he was going to be the Mad Men, you know, that yeah. he was going to, that's not how those scripts come by. Maybe now he would. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I can see the proactiveness of it being a really definitive way to kind of get to a place where you want to be and to to kind of go, well, if I'm frustrated by these roles, this is really what's most interesting. The internal monologue that he must have had was, oh, another role like this. And for everyone we saw him in, I'm sure there are 10 that he turned down or scripts that he read or whatever. Well, what can I do? How can I change that? Instead of being bitter at the writers or being bitter at the studios that were making the pictures or whatever, what can I do? And he looks at it and goes, okay, here's what I can do. I cannot read for roles that are designated this way. I can read for roles that, and I know he says roles for white people, but I'll bet you money that they were roles that didn't have an ethnicity attached Mm -hmm. because those are the roles that, as I said, usually defaulted in the past to white people. So I really love the proactiveness here, and I really love his commitment to being uh, engaged in his part in his career. That's a lesson that I could take on. Sometimes in the business or in all businesses, it's really easy to kind of go, well, this is bullshit, and this is against me, and this is a thing that is dumb, and that's true in every sense. You know, you can lay it out for any stranger, and they'll be like, yeah, 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 that sucks, or that's a tough break, or whatever. But the question is not, oh, doesn't that, isn't this stupid? Isn't this a terrible thing that's happening at my company? The question is, what can I do to change my outlook, my behavior, my whatever, to change my situation? So I've actually talked myself all the way out of my annoyance and skepticism, and I'm quite into it now. Well, and there's an obviously relationship here with Reese Witherspoon where she says, you know, she has had to point out to her children and to executives that she meets about what they're seeing and um, what we've gotten used to and how that has to change. Or what they're not seeing on screen. That's right. That goes back to the whole variety showrunners thing. What what it is that they miss where they were able to release a lineup of showrunners that didn't include one woman. 
But in real life, that happens all the time to us too. And as you said about Michael B. Jordan, it's what we all have to work on, what he's working on actively. Um, you know how you, I'm, I know you know this, but you know how Harvard has this like bias quiz? Yeah. Yeah. They have several, I think. Yeah. yeah. And so there's an acronym for it. I can't remember it right now, but we'll link to it on the site. Um, and so it, 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 you, you take this quiz and there are several bias categories, age bias, race bias, gender bias, uh, uh body shape bias, That's et cetera. Right. Yeah. And and it's it's a good exercise, right? Like in order to go forward, we will have to we have to identify for ourselves our gaps, our blind spots. Um, I for the social took the age one, and the results that it spit out to no one's surprise. I'm <laughs> Here not we even go. gonna look to no one's surprise. I'm not even gonna look at Yasik's face. Is that I have preferential bias for youth? <clears throat> um. Anyway, I bring this up because I think these are these are good ways. I mean, it's just a quiz at Harvard, um, but another colleague of mine took a quiz about gender bias, and it was specifically related to um, what you see in certain professions. So the result it's, that it spit out was that they did, this person who took the quiz have, even though they considered themselves, considered themselves a feminist, they had bias about STEM fields and that, for instance, when someone brings up, my friend is an engineer, does a man pop in your mind or does a woman pop up in your mind, right? And I, I'm pretty sure that this colleague of mine is not alone in what their results yielded. I think that that is the point. Historically, women have not been encouraged to get into STEM fields, which is why we don't see women in STEM fields, which is why when you think of who an engineer is or a mathematician or a coder or whatever, you assume it's going to be a man. Um, I, and, you know, and, and similarly with the artistic fields, like I was just talking to somebody and I was like, oh yeah, uh, they asked me like, uh, who did your hair? And that day it happened to be a male hairstylist and she was like, cause she did a great job, right? These are small little things. Like what is that phrase? If you can't see it, you can't be it. That's right. And this is what we're talking about. Right. And so, yeah, it, it's, you're right that recasting uh, yourself and you know, recasting yourself in your mind of who you can be. And in his case, recasting yourself in terms of the roles you can play, and Issa's as well for that matter, uh, really helps not only for other people to see you that way, uh, but for you to say, yeah, no, I can take this on. It does now make me immediately realize, oh, the next thing I want to see is Michael B. Jordan playing like a corrupt executive of some sort. Like imagine him in some sort of psychological thriller in an office. Why'd you make a face at me? I'm trying to picture it. Like like in a Wall Street executive who's embezzled all kinds of money. Sure. Or yeah. gets into trouble with, you know, the, the uh, he works for his father-in-law, right? And, uh, and suddenly he's, I don't know, he's signed on to a soul-sucking job because he loves the daughter. And his father-in-law is like, you better do this. Where did that happen? Jake Gyllenhaal did that in a terrible movie that never came out called 
It was with Naomi Watts. Um, Demolition. Yeah. Yeah. Jake Gyllenhaal is the is the executive in Demolition. Uh, I feel like also Channing Tatum did that in a terrible movie because that's not a stretch at all. That sounds sort of vaguely like a Ryan Gosling movie too. Yeah, right. But or- I'm reading a uh, I'm reading a book right now called Young Money, uh, which is a is it related to Drake? <laughs> <laughs> no, but it's very much capitalizing on the popularity. Uh, it's about the life of young finance bros on Wall Street and what it's like and having no sleep and all the partying. And I'd love to see Michael B. Jordan in that. Uh, Michael B. Jordan, call Kevin Roos, who wrote the book. Uh, We're not friends, but Kevin, you owe me one now. Um, Something like that to see him in a totally new light, I think, is is where I want to see him go next. Okay. No, I just want to point out before we stop recording that as soon as I started talking about Michael B. Jordan, like as an adult wearing a suit, you lost all interest in this conversation. I was like, I want to see him. In oh, a- he's fully a man to me. Exactly. And I'm like all about his manliness. Mm, are you? Uh, yes. You, you're fine with it as long as he's wearing like a tight sweater. But as soon as I'm like, anyway, how about something corporate? You're like, Zzz, bye. <laughs> I have to say, when I sent you this article for inclusion in the podcast, I think I titled it, kidding, but not really, but kind of, but not really. We should put this in the podcast. Uh, and especially after kind of a rough week in the celebrity world, I really like this as a bit of a, a different perspective. Uh, Tiffany Haddish did uh, the Proust questionnaire for Vanity Fair, and you're already smiling just with the anticipation of this. Um, but... The best part of it is that she's asked, she gives great answers to all the questions, but they ask her about her idea of perfect happiness. And we've spent this podcast talking about, you know, engineering your roles and not taking no for an answer where the integrity of your show is concerned and creating businesses. And Tiffany Haddish has a different answer. Uh, Are you going to let me read all of this? Because I feel like... Yes, please. Okay, here we go. Read the question and then her answer. The question was, what does she consider to be happiness? My idea of perfect happiness? You don't want to know my idea of perfect happiness, Haddish quipped. And the article goes on, we do though, but I am also saying like, can't you hear her in the voice already? Right? And she says, okay, I'll tell you. An orgasm with a beautiful man that loves me is more successful than me and allows me to be me. And because my list is long, I'm doing what I love for a living, and that is bringing joy and happiness to others. Plus, twice a year, I get to go on a yacht and go to a tropical, beautiful location where I can see the bottom of the ocean. Plus, I'm never hungry, my house is clean, and it doesn't have roaches. Nobody in my family asks me for money. They only ask to have a good time with me. There is so much more I want to say, but I still have 35 more questions to answer. (laughs) You're like that. You hit it. You can hear her saying these things. Absolutely. And somewhere she changes from like a what I would like tense to what I want right now. Yeah. Yeah. Which is really interesting. Um, And it goes like I love the specificity. As I said to somebody today, specificity is universal. Uh, And I love the specificity of 
you know, everything from nobody in my family asks me for money mm-hmm. to the house doesn't have roaches to <laughs> I can see the bottom of the ocean. I was like, do you know what the bottom of the ocean actually is? <laughs> like, I, do, if you just mean the sand with the water yeah. over it, like it, that really tickled me. Um, but I thought it was really great that she kind of didn't say, I want uh, a company. I want to, you know, I want to produce. I want to have, you know, several uh, distribution arms and blah, 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 whatever kind of place. I found it really refreshing that her idea of perfect happiness was kind of super achievable in the here and now. Well, you didn't find it refreshing when I basically said the same thing and said I don't want to be a leader. You know what? I guess it's because I don't totally believe you, but Tiffany Haddish uh, clearly is is backing herself up here. Or maybe you're right. Maybe I'm putting my own – my maybe I'm projecting myself there, but uh, it's hard for me to understand that because you are a leader, because you – have a business and, you know, a bunch of people working in your, in your stead and like ever growing bigger. So I think the key here though is happiness. Yeah, I think you're right. And what my happiest state is, is not having to be responsible for anyone but myself, like doing my own thing. Right. But again, then we're talking about, are we talking about infinite Happiness, like in a pause from recording just now, you said, I want to come back in my next life as my dogs because of how well they live. So are we talking about an achievable goal or are we talking about uh, the infinite happiness that we all hope we achieve someday, but who knows if we ever do? I mean, I don't know. I'm full of shit, like in the sense of- There we go. It it does make me happy um, to- be able to continue to have a platform where women collectively, all of us can be on a team together, right? And so I understand that there is some leadership in that. I get it. But it's not just that. I don't want to sit here and sort of dissect all the ways, but I think people who don't intend to be leaders often become them because they are are you hearing me, Isa or Tiffany, for that matter? Because they are so focused on being themselves and telling their own stories that other people want to to be in their wake. So that is in itself kind of a form of leadership. It's a byproduct of of that pursuit, for sure. I just think to go back to Tiffany's simple yet specific idea of happiness, there is like especially after a week that, you know, we've had, a lot of people are struggling, a lot of people are in pain, um, that there is something to just being able to manage your own time and do things on your, like, do things in your day that are just about what you want. And sometimes that is not having to pull for others, you know, and I, Yes, that is selfish and we're not going to get anywhere without the leaders who are saying, come like, you know, get on my back and we will go forward and we will break down walls. I get that one, especially when it comes to economic disparity and social issues and inequality, 100%. But I think the goal of all of that effort is for 
us to be able to like just lie down is lie what you're down. Yeah. And I mean, I'm glad you said that because uh, even though I think this quote and the one that's about to follow it are basically unimpeachable, uh, your phrase about not having to pull for others uh, puts the one part of the quote into relief because I think there are people who will have issue with saying that the uh, the man giving the orgasm is uh, who's more successful than me uh, and allows me to be me. And I think the more successful than me may stick in people's craws, but in the context that you just said, I really like that. The idea being if that person is more successful, then they are more responsible for whoever needs taking care of than she is in this context. That's right. And so I, I think that's interesting and important. That comes out in many ways, right? Like she talks about that in terms of a lover, but also in terms of her family. Um, and she has talked about it before that she is working to get her mother a home that she pays for family members. It's not a complaint. It's a reality. Um, we take care of each other. We take care of our own. Um, a lot of people, even working in show business where it looks fun and it looks glamorous, that check is funding a whole other thing. Oh, it's a whole cottage industry of people who work to, yes, to get that person there or who get a piece of the pie for one reason or another. That's right. Maybe you are a lot closer to Tiffany than you ever imagined because the other part of this that I love is that they ask her, what is your greatest fear? And her answer is not making 285 million. And then she says, I will never tell you my greatest fears. That's how you let your enemies take you down. (laughs) (laughs) And I mean, I've never felt that you were screaming in my ear via Tiffany Haddish, but uh, but if there ever was a phrase that could have been yours, that's it right there. That's right. I mean, it's so basic. Like, <laughs> <laughs> sorry. I, I yeah, of course, it's very basic. It's very art of war. We're all taught in our cribs. Go on. Yes, it's so basic. I mean, like, listen. The best way to put it is a sports analogy. If you uh, are, do you know who you're talking to? Right. But even you will appreciate this. Like, you love your Blue Jays. Yeah. They're well, hard to love. Eh, yeah. They're hard to love, but you love your Toronto Blue Jays. They're not going to, like, tell the opposing team, hey, our shortstop is weak. So no, I get that. Drive the ball down the third baseline. No, I get that. But that said, actors and performers are supposed to be so in touch with their emotions and getting to the fear is what makes it real and specificity is universal. It's a legitimate question for her to be asked. Uh, but the answer is authentic (laughs) enough to make me fall in love with her all over again, which we kind of needed, uh, this week in particular. So I really like her idea of happiness for, it's immediacy and kind of it's achievability, you know, because maybe that is what you need and, uh, and, or at least, you know, something that, that you could get close to and that might, uh, might make sense at the time. 
Um, in the corniest way possible, I hope listening to us makes you happy in some way. Oh my God, that is corny. <laughs> wow. Look at me. It makes us happy to know you're listening and it makes us happy to get your feedback, your tweets, and your emails when you share stories with us about work and showing your work. Do you want to read the Irish? Mm, I think we should cut it down for okay. next time because she okay. didn't want her name and whatever. Okay. It makes us happy um, to hear your stories about work, how you can relate to the themes that we're discussing, how frustrated you may be um, in in your work, but that you share our frustrations as well. So keep sending that. Um, keep working hard. I'll do the uh, authoritative leadership voice and say, please keep leading and say, please keep leaving us reviews uh, on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts because it helps other people find the podcast. Thank you very much for showing that work. Uh, We love your communications on Twitter, on Instagram, wherever you find us. Thank you for listening on Google Play, on iTunes and Spotify. And we'll be back next week. Bye. Bye. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. <laughs> 